0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been prerecorded.
1: Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered.
2: Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
3: Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Planning for our final days is a task that can be hard to face. End-of-life care is complex and emotionally challenging and unique for each person. Death can arrive suddenly, or a person may linger in a near-death state for days or weeks. Many patients are most afraid of not knowing what the process of dying is like. Will there be pain? The fear of being left alone at the end of their lives? Recognizing the terminal phase is important for patients, their families, and care providers and allows realistic expectations and optimal management for physical suffering, as well as the emotional, social, and spiritual needs, because there is no algorithm that fits every case. Here to discuss this very important topic is Dr. John Traveling, my friend from where we were practiced at Temple University Hospital together. John is a professor of thoracic medicine and surgery from the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University has written over 120 publications in his field of pulmonary and critical care, as well as medical ethics, physician and patient communication, and end-of-life care. And he engages medical students and his colleagues in conversation about the dignity of each patient, especially the end-of-life. Welcome, John. It's so good for you to join us.
4: Thank you, Marianne. It's nice to be here.
3: So when we talk about end-of-life care, what does that involve?
4: Great question. Um... <laughs> Think of of end-of-life care as really a broad category encompassing many facets of a person's life as they approach the final days of living here in this world. And I say it that way, um, since many people, uh, patients included, that I've encountered at least over the years, um, have some sense or a belief that that life doesn't end here on Earth. That is, that they have some sense that there may be life after death somewhere, somehow. So, um, but but contextualizing uh, this more in a medical or a healthcare arena, um, I think it, it'd be helpful to think of end-of-life care as, as really those aspects of care for a person uh, by a physician or other members of a healthcare team. Uh, When death um, is sort of in in view for the patient, however long that may be uh, before them, Um, I'd like to, um, in terms of what it involves, I'd like to uh, think um, of what I call domains in a person's life. Um, and then the elements or the concerns that are proper to each of those domains. So, for example, we think of four. You alluded to already four domains of the physical, the psychological, the social, and spiritual dimension, or domains of a person. In the physical uh, domain, and, and we spend a lot of time as uh, as physicians and other healthcare uh, providers do. Likewise, um, you know, physical symptoms, pain, shortness of breath, uh, nausea, vomiting, GI, other GI symptoms, um, embarrassing things like incontinence, uh, diminished appetite, weakness, and so on and so so forth, delirium, altered consciousness, maybe paralysis. These are all um, obviously um impairments in the physical domain, if you will, um, that may be amplified uh, as one is in an end of life circumstance. Certainly physical, uh, psychological uh, matters uh, are emotions, uh, anger, depression, anxiety, fear, sadness, all of these worry, all of these important elements um, that that, uh, we do well to recognize in people at the end of life in terms of social um Mm -hmm. in the social domain i like to to recognize uh isolation um in association with disease maybe friends don't come over as much uh, for whatever reason we feel we may be isolated relationships with others that otherwise were intact may become strained and impaired and I also um, like to think that, uh, and, and people worry a lot about in end of life care financial considerations. For many people, at the end of the life, Good that point. is uh, that yeah. is an important element as well to be aware of. And then, and then, um, in the spiritual domain, if you will. Um, as it suggests, I think many people believe in something and something transcendent, something beyond themselves. Um, but but elements in this category uh, might be uh, something like uh, forgiveness, forgiveness of oneself, perhaps for behaviors that may be contributed to their ill health or not. Uh, maybe forgiveness of others in their life that uh, weighs on them um, Certainly, as I said, beliefs are all part of it. What what a person believes in is part of this. There may be doubt mm-hmm. on the other side. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, practices of prayer or faith, if, if a person does uh, subscribe to a, a, a belief system, certainly yeah. certainly goes to the spiritual dimension of their their care. Well,
3: what's interesting too, John, I'm the daughter of a funeral director. So I grew up seeing funerals in my home. And somewhere in the back of my little girl mind, I always thought when I would have lose somebody that I'd be ready. Oh my goodness, I I am just very hard to control emotions when I lose somebody close to me. Even sometimes I go to the funeral of, a, of somebody I've never met, but it's a friend's parent or loved mm-hmm. one, and it I find it very hard to control my own emotions. But I, you and I had a great conversation the other day, and end of life care. Is not just the hours before the breathing ceases or the heart stops beating for somebody with a chronic illness. And you have uh, multiple lenses. You, you take care of patients in intensive care, but you all see people with chronic lung issues. They're short of breath, et cetera, that can go on for years. You see people in their eighties. So what's wonderful about your approach. And you've told me this, we don't have the luxury of deciding how we're going to die. It can be sudden. It can be protracted, but I know you said that if you have an older person and they have chronic, you're wise enough to say, we should talk about this before death is on your doorstep for all the reasons you mentioned so that when the time comes, you're at peace with saying goodbye to your family and loved ones. I've experienced watching patients or, or people I know say that somebody is sad when they lose a loved one but sometimes it's even harder if they hadn't reconciled mm. before it's over because now that person's gone forever and they never had the chance. So you bring up such really beautiful thinking and so comprehensive. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, I
4: think that's, I think that's very true. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, many times we don't like to talk about death, particularly as physicians. So right. But, um, to talk about death, we sometimes view it, maybe, uh, not maybe, but sometimes as a failure, our failure, right? Letting a patient down, we fail the patient in some ways. So and it's a very complex, as you know, as a physician, uh, that whole dynamic, but, um, but, but sometimes having those, um, those feelings or those um, impediments to talking about end of life with a patient. I mean, patients often know what's happening, whether it's, whether it's verbalized or not, um, many times. Um, and, but, uh, it, it, and it's important for a physician to maybe bring that up and to explicitly, you know, and gently and, and, and you know, in, in the proper way, um, raise the issue, um, of, 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 you know, imminent death if it is or mm-hmm. or even if it's not even if it may be months or even even a few years away who knows you know i often say right you know no one really knows except one person how long any of us are going to live but uh right um, well so we talk about the
3: controlling the person's pain, if they need a, a specific pain management and avoiding suffering, that's such an important issue. Then we want to address, as you say, not just the emotional needs of the patient, but their family members and keep that dialogue going uh, among the family, but between the provider, the doctor, the nurses, and, and it has, to, life is dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as you say, you might bring uh, people into the office, uh, but then, as the person's condition improves or declines that we keep talking. So what might a patient and their family expect from us as healthcare providers. Yeah, I guess decisions about CPR, where a person wants to die at home or in the hospital, organ donation. Let's talk about a few of those issues. Well, sure. Final few sure. minutes here. Yeah, mm-hmm. good
4: good question. I think it, it's helpful to think maybe about expectations to first consider the the various scenarios, right, and places where end of life. Uh, encounters occur, such as an emergency room, I, you know, it may be totally unexpected mm. or, or on the other end, not that it's a continuum, but maybe in a hospice facility, uh, things are a little bit more, you know, um, uh, clear as to what's happening. We're in a hospital room or an intensive care unit, or maybe at home, right, and so, so um and then, as you alluded to, also you know the circumstances surrounding end of life, whether it's an acute, uh, sudden, often critical illness, or a non-acute process but with known progression of the disease, like neurodegenerative, uh, you know, ALS or dementia, um, or or whether it's 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 not neither of that those, but something like states of permanent unconsciousness or. Or chronic relapsing diseases, COPD, heart failure. Um, right. so I, you know, what, what can patients and patients' family expect? I think for most part, we owe and, and we're trained. Um, you know, they, they should expect and, you know, uh, compassionate understanding from their caretakers, that pain, if it's mm-hmm. present, that it be managed. And, and that's not only possible, even in in severe pain states, but it, it really is expected. I mean, we're just the advances in pain management these days, there really is no one that should be writhing suffering and pain, uh, in pain in first world uh, uh, medical care. Um, they may expect um, uh, other symptoms, if pain is even if pain is managed, or maybe pain is not at all a part of the uh, the end of life um, scenario, but other symptoms, as I alluded to earlier, GI symptoms, mm-hmm. respiratory symptoms, um, they can expect from healthcare uh, providers maybe preemptive interventions to be taken. For example, mm-hmm. if, if 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 a disease condition, if weight loss is going to be is anticipated, maybe as part of the clinical. Uh, syndrome uh, a preemptive boosting of one's caloric intake maybe sometimes Mm -hmm. that involves placing a feeding tube there are very appropriate times where that needs to be done um john yes
3: i'm going to uh ask us to take a little break just for a minute so we can listen to our sponsors and we'll be right back with dr john traveling from temple
1: Thanks for listening
3: to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence
1: Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
3: Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're talking with Dr. John Traveline from Temple University Hospital about end of life care. And John, you're explaining this so beautifully to our listeners because uh, I don't know that the average person, I don't think I'm ever going to die. I guess I am like death and taxes. I guess I have to face it, but we all prefer not to. But it's important so that when the time comes, both the patient and the family members are comfortable and prepared because there are details like, what if you have, and as we said, there is no one template for everyone. Every case is unique. Let's say the idea of a feeding tube comes up. A lot of people shudder at the thought of a feeding tube. As a GI doc, I've placed hundreds, thousands of them. And if somebody's temporarily in a coma from a car accident and then their brain heals, we've kept them alive in a healthy way with a feeding tube. It's a good thing, but we probably wouldn't boosts the calories in a person who's so terminally ill right so there that might be an issue feeding tube cpr let's talk about that for a minute cardiopulmonary resuscitation are we going to do cpr on somebody who's really in their last days if their heart should stop like that's something that a family would have to give an answer, yes or no?
4: Yeah, excellent question. It comes up so often, um, particularly in the critical care setting that uh, I spend a lot of time in. Um, You know, CPR is very appropriate in certain cases, but there are many cases, particularly surrounding end-of-life care uh, or end-of-life circumstance of a person where, where to subject a person to, um, resuscitative maneuvers really confers no benefit, uh, for the patient. In fact, maybe harmful. Um, but, but the cases, as you said, are so varied and unique, um, uh, that it's hard to make generalization, but, but but families can expect, and patients themselves, if they're if they're conscious and have capacity, can expect to to from their healthcare team to um, hear about the possibility of uh, whether resuscitative uh, efforts should they be otherwise uh, uh, called for, should they be done. And again, it, it it's an important conversation to have. Mm-hmm. It's not something across the board that. Um, that is appropriate or mm-hmm. proper to a patient's care.
3: And we talk about where a patient prefers to pass away. You might think that being at home is is the most peaceful, but for some for, for the caregivers, that might be really frightening because Look. as a person starts to weaken uh, either from their illness or maybe sedation or a metabolic disturbance like high levels of calcium that comes with some cancers, the person can't eat they can't drink. So we say, okay, we can't, they, we don't want them to drink liquids. It's easier to aspirate that. So we'll do full liquids, just small things like that that can mm-hmm. still keep the person hydrated. A person's more comfortable and they're hydrated, but we're not going to jump to IV fluids. Like Just that little uh, example has helped us so much. You teach a family how to do... Um, Mouth care with the little sponge it's, sticks, it keeps the person's mouth yes. just those little steps because, Ap- and we tell them expect breathing changes, expect the breathing become more labored mm-hmm. because they panic. So maybe in some cases it's better to let the person die. In the hospital, what do you think about that general question?
4: Well, I I I, I would agree with that. Sometimes the you know the the commonly said uh, you know idiom uh, sometimes less is more, and uh, you know it's about the patient and about caring for the patient and the needs of them, trying to minimize any harms and doing things that are truly for the benefit or that we believe is for the benefit of the patient. Sometimes patients cannot be as much as they may want to, as much as the family may want to care for them in the home situation. um, It it just is not possible. They require too much um, care Nursing care, uh, support to uh, to be uh, cared for properly at home, and and it's actually would not be of their benefit to their benefit, and very appropriate to be in a in a hospital type situation or a, a facility that can meet their needs mm-hmm. um, as as the end approaches as the end nears.
3: Because people who provide those comfort measures. All day, every day, can anticipate, gee, this person's getting weaker, their breathing has mm-hmm. changes. They know to say to the person's spouse or child, this is what we expect. We're going to give a little comfort medication to ease the, the difficulty breathing. Let's talk about the difference, if we could, between palliative care. And hospice care. I think that's confusing for the average person.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. And I think it's an important distinction to to be aware of. Palliative care, in a broader uh, sense, or is a broader view of care for patients, whether at the end of life or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the timeline, so to say, is much longer. Right. Interventions, medical treatments, and so on, aim not so much at cure but making better symptoms, palliating, that's the term used, right, to make better, to allay uh, symptoms, making someone feel better in the midst of the disease process they're going through. Um, what uh, are
3: some examples, John? Like somebody, somebody's yeah, had a stroke well, and a nurse turns them in the bed, that kind of thing?
4: Yeah, yeah, that, you know, just basic basic care to, to, to prevent for complications, sometimes that's like that example. Um, pain is is uh, is is an important. You know, we I know we're emphasizing it, but that's just so common. But uh, adequate pain management and control of the patient's pain is, is palliation. Um, uh, sometimes uh, morphine. To, it's it's a, it's a old but very useful and very effective drug for breathlessness. Um, yes, I think people, people so need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we think of it as pain management, and that's, that's accurate as well, but it has a very important use in um, in palliating, making better, lessening a person's air hunger, sense of difficulty breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, under the other comment I would like to make about the palliative care model is many times treatments, let's say for cancer. Right. Um, the cancer treatments are are able to be continued. They're quote, permitted um, in a person that's undergoing palliative care. Now, in hospice care, um, to distinguish it from palliative care, for one, the timeline is much shorter. In fact, uh, years, decades ago, Medicare guideline concerning uh, hospice care had adopted, um, or had had adopted a six month sort of timeline, and many agencies um, sort of uh, follow that, um, that is a disease process um, or circumstance for the patient where death is reasonably expected to occur within six months, recognizing, Mm -hmm. of course, that, um, you know, there's nothing firm or absolute about that. Many people uh, many times people will 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 live in hospice care. John, let me interrupt you now.
3: just for a second there. So something that stands out in my mind: if somebody's palliative care, let's say they have they're getting chemo, and uh, yes, you want to treat their uh, pain or their constipation, that sort of thing. Um, but palliation might be: I'm going to put a commode next to your bedside because you have a, a cancer spread to your leg. We want to, you know, those kind of d- daily quality of life improvements. And mm-hmm. if a person with on chemo that has a pretty good chance of several years, and they get appendicitis, we're going to operate. If somebody's in hospice, we say, yeah, we're probably not going to it's, operate. And we're real clear, right?
4: Yes, yes. Hospice care really, as I suggested other treatments may be permitted in palliative care model, but in hospice care, really the focus is almost exclusively uh, on on. Palliative care things like you mentioned, but not treatments, no therapies mm-hmm. such as radiation or chemotherapy for the patient with cancer, or or certain medications uh, for heart failure in the person who's in hospice with terminal heart uh, heart disease. So um, that's an important thing. And treatments are really off limits, so to say, in hospice care. Treatments aimed at at altering a disease, but it's really making a person feel better, palliating, making them feel better, treating their symptoms, um, uh, anything that 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 gives them comfort and, and, and lessens any sense of distress.
3: Mm-hmm. John, what do you teach your medical students and residents in the intensive care unit, your medicine, surgery residents, what do you teach them about uh, end-of-life care?
4: Yeah, I, I first want them to, to know, some of the major ingredients that go into good end-of-life care. I, I think it's important for them, for example, to recognize values of the patient. Um, uh, that, that's so important. I think it's important for them to recognize a patient's autonomy. They're, 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 although not an absolute principle of ethics, um, that the patient makes the decisions for themselves uh, to the extent that they can do that. I think it's important to, to recognize um, you know beliefs that the patient may have, uh, whether uh, whatever they are. Uh, I think I think uh, I emphasize it's important to have a, a basic skill set, right, to the students and trainees that they know their medicine well, that they know and understand the disease, they understand the, the prognosis of disease, the course, and all of all of that goes into just good medical care. That they know how to apply treatments again, pain management, symptom management for GI distress, for respiratory distress. Uh, these are all, but probably the one uh, most critical thing that I'd like to convey to, to, to patients across, uh, to students across the board is the distinction between therapy and care. I, I drill this in so much with it because it's so misunderstood. Therapy having to do with treating a particular pathology, care having to do with showing interest or concern of the patient independent of any pathology and i always say to them um, and this comes up when we talk about withdrawing medical therapy sometimes very appropriate um, but that we should always care for patients even if we don't have treatments or therapies to uh, to offer them
3: mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit earlier we have about a minute left in this segment but along with the emotional needs of the patient who's in fear of dying or they become agitated, the importance of family dynamics. We talked about bringing the patient in for discussion, but say what family members would you like to join us in this conversation? I think that's brilliant that you do that. Um, And when we come back from the break, I wanted to get your thinking on the idea of forgiveness, a patient forgiving himself or herself or making amends with those family members or friends so that everybody's at peace when the final moment comes. Yes.
4: Yes, absolutely. So important. So important.
3: Mm-hmm. Stay with us during the break and we'll be back for more conversation about end of life care. And now for your real champion, I call this segment super sibs. For a child to lose a parent to cancer is heartbreaking but when a parent loses a child to cancer it goes against all the rules of natural order. Childhood cancer. The American Cancer Society reports that after accidents cancer is the second leading cause of death in children ages 1 through 14. Imagine being the child with cancer dealing with pain, nausea, fever, fear of needles, maybe surgery, losing your hair, seeing other kids go to school and be with their friends, missing birthday parties, sports, and sleepovers. Now imagine being the parent of a child with cancer, worry about doctor visits, medical bills, wondering how much time you have left together, missing work, sheer exhaustion, and fear of going to sleep in case you don't hear your child call for help. Now, step into the shoes of a sibling to the child with cancer. They aren't the ones who are sick, but the rhythm of their lives is disrupted too. When mom and dad focus on their sick brother or sister, who's there to check their homework, hear about their tough day, or plan their birthday party? Well, many of you have heard of Alex's Lemonade Stand. This is an organization that was formed about a year after Liz and Jay Scott lost their eight-year-old daughter to cancer. The mission is to change the lives of children with cancer through impactful research, raising awareness, and supporting families with a child going through cancer. Since the start in 2005, the fund has raised over $250 million, which goes to research projects at over 150 institutions in America and Canada, and a travel for care program that supports families of children receiving treatment. But another very special part of the mission is the Super Sibs program. They recognize that childhood cancer affects the whole family, not just the sick child undergoing treatment. Brothers and sisters worry about their sick sibling and don't always understand what's happening. I'm sure that many wonder if they could get the same sickness. The mission of Super Sibs is to comfort, encourage, and empower siblings of children with cancer so they can also face the future with courage and hope. Super Sibs includes kids from ages four through 18 developmentally based with groups from ages four through seven, eight through 12 and 13 through 18. The two year program includes materials that come in the mail that help with coping, encouragement, maybe a birthday gift, or just something fun with their name on it. And there's a special guide for teens. The staff at Alex's notifies parents to expect the package and materials might include a discussion about jealousy, anger, or even back-to-school plans. When siblings complete the program, they get a medal. If they want, they can re-enroll and become an ambassador and talk about their family or volunteer at an event. When a child asks, why does my brother always get mail? But then the child gets one with lemons and it helps them feel like it's not just the sick child getting the attention. They too are seen. They are not alone. Super Sims works with hospitals across the country who make referrals. They also connect with social workers, child life workers. In addition, there's a grief and loss program, which offers ways to remember and honor a lost brother or sister. What a brilliant and thoughtful program to remember children in a family dealing with childhood cancer when they might otherwise feel forgotten. We salute you, Alex, Her parents, Liz and Jay Scott, and all the staff at Alex's Lemonade Stand, you're real champions. Learn more about the beautiful work of Alex's Lemonade Stand and their Super Sibs program on their website, alexslemonade.org. That's Alex's without an apostrophe, A-L-E-X-S, lemonade.org.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, and your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
1: Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com stay covered. When we ask questions. We make sure they're the big ones, like when it comes to diseases. Can we
5: strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions.
2: Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively
3: by Independence Blue Cross.
0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC.
3: Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor for a very important conversation about end of life care. Our friend, Dr. John Traveling, is a pulmonary and critical care specialist who sees patients in intensive care on a daily basis and also takes care of chronically ill people in the office. John, we were talking about facing end of life and forgiveness. Just that one word brings out so many thoughts and so many emotions. How do you bring that word up with your patients and their
4: families? Yeah, good question. Also, I um, I, I've reflected over the years um, that uh, that we are, as human beings, we're made for relationships. Whether we're married or not, um, whether we have close family relationships or not, whether we're really close with friend relationships or not, it doesn't matter because all of us, I think, are made um, to be in in, in relationships with one another. And we need that. We need the connectedness with other human beings. Um, This this business of forgiveness um, uh, came up with me over the years as I I sort of would see how people would be deeply hurt and pained and um, distressed emotionally, spiritually, um, because of of rupture, if you will, and connectedness with other people. We're made to be connected. We do well when we're connected with other people. And boy, did we uh, learn
3: that with COVID, that the isolation just is now considered the Surgeon General says that's a health risk, and rightly so, as you're saying.
4: yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so the, the degree that certain things uh, may separate us from from those uh, who are close to us that we we love, and, and you know, calls for calls for forgiveness, which I, I see basically as a way of bridging or reconnecting with someone else. Uh, maybe for past wrongs or misunderstanding or whatever the circumstance uh, particulars might be. But uh, I think that's particularly important, and especially so at the end of life, because, you know, we we, we want to be uh, reconciled, if you will, to use that word. We want to forgive. We want to be forgiven. Um, I would say, because it's for our benefit.
3: Well, it's such a gift, too, because especially if the person dying, if you think they didn't understand what your comment or gesture meant, you have to live with it. And once they're gone, and, you know, you hear about siblings or relatives that just say, nope, I don't care. But boy, does it hurt yeah. even more once the opportunity's lost. Physician-assisted suicide. I think Oregon was the first state to legalize that in 1997-ish or so. And I love your, yeah. uh, your impression of that, that oftentimes a person doesn't want to say, all right, next Thursday at 5 o'clock, I'm going to take the uh, – it's more sometimes in your own words,
4: yeah, a plea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, physician-assisted suicide or aid in dying, um, it goes by various um, terms. Uh, Became legalized in the United States, and I think it was ninety four. But then there was some injunction, so it it really goes into effect in Oregon was the first state uh, in nineteen ninety seven, and and, um, I think there are there are now uh, it is now legal in ten. 10 of the United States, uh, 10 of the states in the country and, and of course, in other countries mm-hmm. um, as but well. But I think you
3: captured it so well, John, when yeah. you said so sometimes when that fear, I, f- it's a person's plea for help. They're yeah, looking for hope. Yeah,
4: yeah. Um, you know, my experience, uh, it's not legalized in, in the state of Pennsylvania, so my experience is rather limited. But but times I, I am asked, believe it or not, I am asked over the years for patients, uh, one case, uh, a patient's family asking for page, uh, physician uh, suicide. and um, But when I see it as an opportunity to further care uh, for the person, it's a, in a sense, I think it's an expression that more was needed in the care for that patient or the patient's family. And I, I've come to really see that all the requests for for assisted suicide or euthanasia or anything in that area is really a plea, is really a calling out for help. A patient or a patient's family looking for help to keep on hoping uh, when when things appear to be hopeless. So I think if mm-hmm. we sort of focus uh, from a care pay- caregiver standpoint, or even from the patient standpoint, you know, why am I asking to, to end this all? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, you know, ask the question, have I lost hope? Where can I find yeah. hope? I think there is always yeah. hope, by the way. And so, we be- but we don't always see it. It appears to be we appear to have lost hope, but uh, I think it's always there. And so maybe to to just go a little bit deeper, maybe, and say, you know, what am I asking for? Do I really want to end my life? Uh, I suspect suspect that's not the case if we go a little bit deeper.
3: Well, and just, uh, you know, as scientists, we look for data or evidence from the past. And a study came out in New England Journal. in the year 2000 from Oregon. Oh, there were like 4,000 people and they got uh, uh, responses from over 2,600 patients. Half of them uh, who had requested physician assistance to die changed changed their their minds. Once the physician said, let's tweak this. Let's get better pain control or let's give you an antidepressant med or refer to hospice. Which brings Mm. us to your experience in including cultural and religious traditions into the planet, because there's such important aspects of care, because it may affect your communication. It may affect how they want their pain managed, whether they want to donate their organs, traditions at death, or even during bereavement, all those issues can relate to cultural practices or, you know, or were their religious traditions. Tell us about that if you yeah, want. Yeah, and
4: and, and and more and more. We're in a, a much, uh, you know, a more diversified society. A religious mm-hmm. traditions, cultural differences more than I think ever. Um, at least in my experiences. So, and and they're very they're very varied, right? and, and Different. Sometimes we can. Um, it's interesting, sometimes there can be um, signs. You know, we walk into a patient's room that we can infer what their beliefs uh, may be, or what particular religious tradition they might um, they might subscribe to. Um, sometimes they tell us. Um, sometimes we know what their that their beliefs are important because they tell us, or or their family does, or um, um, or we we might you um, might know their their uh, particular religious tradition that they. Uh, identify it as such on their admission record. Mm-hmm. For example, um,
3: because there's a box we, that a patient can check. Right when you when you're admitted to the hospital, uh, one of the things that be- became law is we have to ask people if they have a living will. That's a whole separate show. But um, what is your religion? Uh, you know, what is your practice? Catholic, yes. Protestant, Jewish, is um, uh, Muslim. So that. If the, when the need arises, we can call for a priest, a rabbi, mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. imam, a minister. But uh, I always tell my patients, remember, if the nurse is busy, the doctor, it might not come into their mind, make sure you ask, say. Because Temple has priests, you know, most major medical yes. centers have yeah. that designated oh. priest that serves your community or minister or imam, but maybe not. So check into that as well, Yes.
4: Yes, yes. We have a, a temple, a, a phenomenal palliative care service. A team, there you go. Uh, a team, multidisciplinary team, um, who uh, are involved with palliative care, as we discussed. It, it, when hospice care is appropriate, they help usher patients in that direction as well. And and they um, they many times are the brokers, if you will, for the connections with. Um, religious leaders and officials that, um, that the patient may request. And, um, we, we, they facilitate them being present to be with the patient and, 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 to, uh, to express the very, whatever their, their particular tradition, um, uh, calls for, if you will. I know, I know the Catholics have a, a, a particular sacrament. Uh, many times, in, um, in uh, Protestant, um, faithful Protestant patients, uh, many people come into the room and, and, and prayer uh, occurs at the bedside with the patient um, and, and so on. I think there's a blessing um, uh, by Jewish rabbis in, in the situation. So there, there are so many dimensions to this as well, as you said, um, but an, and, an important, an important uh, element of end of life. It's Light. about
3: providing that peace to the family, the patient, That's, and feeling like they did everything they possibly could for that moment when it arrives. John, what about um, any cultural dimensions that that come up in particular? Um, Outside of religion,
4: mm-hmm. yeah, I I think I think so there too. Um, I well, it it's more religious. What came to my mind was uh, was refusing so. certain, mm-hmm. certain, but but often there's a it, it, there there are some cultural things that refer to. Uh, that, that come to mind over um, care of the body after death or uh, organ donation for example again it it sort mm-hmm. of blurs with uh, sometimes religious traditions but I but I don't think it's 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 um, it's contrasted as such I mean there's there's a blend whether religious or cultural things I don't know are you thinking of something in particular that I no, there's more quote purely cultural? well as you
3: say when people from around the world were all uh globetrotters now and uh our major medical centers temple Jefferson we do see people from around the world I I mm. did my training at Memorial Sloan Kettering and the first day I had a patient from Greece a patient from Turkey they yeah. and I was spellbound because uh they they didn't die fortunately but I I think of those cases that you want to be sensitive and yeah I, and, I, I mm-hmm.
4: it's just as I was talking and thinking about that I know um um, some cultural things that, differences that inform or cultures that inform um, whether a patient wants to know um, about their condition, you know, actually their diagnosis and their prognosis. And, and I, it's come up a few times over over the recent years so where families uh, don't want the patient and it's a cultural thing don't want the patient they tell us explicit, uh, explicitly don't tell the patient about their prognosis mm-hmm. and so we have to navigate that and um
3: that's a really tough issue because if somebody yeah. says don't tell grandmom that she's going to die and what i usually say is you know what the relationship is between me and your grandmother and you don't mm-hmm. want a doctor who fibs <laughs> i'm asked my polite way of right. Bringing it right. around to right because because the dying person usually consents that it's the end.
4: Ab- yes, you say? yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting that there are some differences, but it, it requires a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion and, and, and uh, with the family and with the patient. And, and as you said, often it, the relationship we have is with the patient and the duty to the patient. So often it is uh, letting them know, not uh, contrary per se, but in an in in appropriate, gentle, uh, yes. and agreeable way. That's the word. A
3: gentle, truthful yeah. way, because that's what, in the end... That's what people appreciate most—that
4: mm-hmm. that
3: you're honest and um, honest. and that you have a heart right. as well. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back for our wrap up with Dr. John Traveline.
0: Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross.
5: Good evening, I'm Stephanie Lewis, Clinical Director for Recovery Centers of America at Devon and one of your addiction experts from RCA. Today I'm here to talk to you about thriving in sobriety, tips to cure boredom in recovery. After months or years of engaging in addictive behaviors, finding purpose and excitement in everyday life can be difficult. Here are some smart recovery tips to help you cultivate a fulfilling and meaningful life in sobriety while avoiding the pitfalls of boredom and relapse. So some ideas include find a new hobby or passion, volunteer in the community, engage in physical exercise and outdoor activities, connect with others in recovery, learn a new skill or take a class, travel and explore new places, practice mindfulness, It's important to recognize that recovery is a lifelong journey. Even after the initial stages of recovery, you must continue to grow and change to maintain your sobriety. If you or a loved one needs help with alcohol or drugs, reach out to Recovery Centers of America at 833-969-0268 or visit rcaradiodoctor.com. That's dr.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 seven.
2: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems.
3: And in our last segment of Your Radio Doctor, we call this segment Your Weekly Prescription as we wrap up the show. Dr. John Travelyne, you've shared beautiful information and really giving our listeners hope to understand that when they as the patient or their family members or close friends reach that last moment in time that there are people like you spending all day every day being ready to help with that passage to the next life um Mm -hmm. john one of the things that i think people need to understand if a person a patient dies in the hospital they're officially pronounced as expired by a physician if you have a loved one at home, as soon as the person has expired, you need to contact your physician or uh, hospice care so they can have someone come and officially pronounce the person as as gone uh, that they've Correct. gone. So that's important. Correct. And I think the other thing I'd love to hear your take on uh, anything you you add is wonderful. But I we've we've all grown up hearing that the last sense to leave. The sick and dying patient is their hearing. So even though they might be in coma, we remind family and friends to be by the bedside and your familiar voice or your touch or even music they like is bringing them such comfort because they know you're there. I know my own precious mother, I would come home, feed the kids, get them to bed and go back at like seven and just sit with her all night in case she opened her eyes for a millisecond. I want to say, I'm here mom, you know? And I stayed with her every millisecond. My dad was there on the final day with my sister. He was tired. She brought him home and I, and my mother seemed stable. And then they weren't gone for a half hour and her breathing started to change and I must've panicked. The phone in her room didn't work. I left the room to call and she slipped away. And I think mm. the dying person often waits for that moment so they don't crush you. They don't, mm. you know.
4: This, yeah, I, I think you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, testimonies like that. Um, um, you know, for as sad as, as the loss of someone is because of death, um, it, it can be a very beautiful experience believe it or not. <laughs> and I know you believe it because you've seen it and you experience it. Oh yeah. But it can be a very beautiful, peaceful uh experience. Um um I I too um uh have learned that hearing is one of the last of of our senses to uh to go. Um so even as a person maybe as they're dying slips into unconsciousness and and um appears comfortable, but may have some labored breathing or whatnot, and medicines are given to make them appear more comfortable and to be comfortable. Um, I think some of the most beautiful things I've seen is a spouse at the bedside whispering, or a child um, either whispering or out loud speaking to the patient, dad, I love you, mom, I love you, um, as, and, and continuing that uh, as, they, as they take their last breath. It, it could be such a beautiful thing. So, um, yeah, I, I would encourage if people have that opportunity, again, for as sad as it is, it's, it could be the most beautiful thing. Um, I, um, I would like to just – I'd like to, just one comment, in, in maybe in closing, say that I, I have to say in my decades of, of practice – What really is good news uh, in this area of -of end-of-life care is that we have gotten so much better um, palliative care, so much better. In fact, so much so that it's its own medical specialty now, hospice care, so much better than it ever was over the decades. And we pay more attention in medicine to the patients in the last moments of death. We're, We're cognizant. We're aware of the hope. That um, that patients crave in the last moments, and that the family craves for for their loved one, um, and I I think it's it's really good to know that, and it's happening that we're so much better at providing, I think, superior end of life care. Um, would encourage families, patients in these situations, to to expect that from from their. From their physicians, from their nurse and other healthcare providers. Well, you because say it, it's there. Yeah, and you say offer.
3: it so well and so beautifully, John, and you live the message. And Temple University and any patients that experience your care and your presence are very blessed to have you in the picture because it's not an easy departure. But as you say, it can be beautiful, especially if you put everybody's comfort. First, as you do. So, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. John Traveling from Temple University. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Marianne.
3: Thank you for listening to Your Radio Doctor. Tune in every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. You can listen to this show or any of our segments, including Your Real Champion, Your Addiction Prevention Tip, on odyssey.com. That's A U D. ACY.com. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and to Recovery Centers of America. If you would like to partner in the show and support our effort to provide medical education to the community, send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Tell us about a champion in your world, family member, your workplace, the community. Send us the story to info at yourradiodoctor.net. To all of our fathers, grandfathers, expectant fathers, we wish you a wonderful, happy Father's Day tomorrow. I hope you're surrounded by the children who love and appreciate you so much. And kids, remember to thank your daddies and your granddads for all their hard work to protect you and teach you life's lessons. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre recorded.
1: Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24 7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com stay covered.